You're listening to a sermon from Providence Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. For more information about our church, please visit church-kc.com or come and visit on a Sunday morning. Sunday School for All Ages starts at 9 a.m. and our worship begins at 1015. Thanks for listening. Good morning once again. Join me, if you, if you will please, in your Bibles in 1 Peter chapter 5. So today we will bring to a close our series through 1 Peter. And uh, so we're going to get through, by God's grace, all 14 uh, verses here today. In case you are wondering, I mentioned this before, but in case you're wondering where are we going to go next, uh, next we will do uh, a study of the book of Ruth. So when I come back from vacation, so just also in case you don't know, when the service is concluded today, we will be pulling out and we will be eastbound and down, loaded up and trucking. And we're going to go to that land, and I'm not going to complete the rest of that song. Uh, we'll go to, some of you get that, and uh, we're going to go to the land on the other side of the Great River. But anyway, well, I'll be on vacation for the next two weeks. Most of you know that. We're going back to North Carolina. We have a wedding to go to, so it's a good thing. Uh, but when I come back after that, we will get into uh, the book of Ruth. Today, we're going to finish 1 Peter. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to follow along with me as I read. As is often the case when we get to the end of a New Testament letter, there's just kind of a, a bunch of things that are being said here in the conclusion. So final exhortations. God's Word says, and Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss 
of love. Let me say that again. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace. Amen. Uh, peace to all of you who are in Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, thank you for your precious word. And I pray, Lord, that I would rightly divide it here this morning. And I just pray that, that you would speak through me and uh, that you would enable me to rightly divide your word, but, uh, that you'd give me the strength to do that which you have called me to do here today. I cannot and do not want to seek to do it in my own power, but um, I seek to do it in, in your great power because I know that, that you have the ability to, to speak through a fallen and a broken vessel such as myself. I pray, Lord, uh, that you would be honored through the preaching of your word here today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the July 15, 1974 issue of Time magazine, a group of historians were asked to answer the following question, what makes a great leader? What makes a great leader? And one anonymous historian responded this way by saying, greatness has nothing to do with morality. A leader gets people to follow him. And I'm not so sure that I agree with that definition of leadership. And in fact, I'll just go right ahead and tell you, I don't agree with that definition of leadership. I think it's a really bad definition of leadership. According to that definition, men such as Hitler or Mussolini would be considered great leaders. I mean, these men had no moral compass. They had no morality to speak of. But they, they, did, they were able to get a, a great following of people who followed them. But, you know, I would ask you, what was the end result of their leadership? Well, it was complete ruin for those who followed them. And it was complete ruin, ultimately, uh, for their nation. So I think as Christians, we should certainly reject that definition of leadership. Biblically speaking, character is far more important in leadership than simply the ability to draw a crowd. Let's go to the life and times of Jesus and, and think about his ministry for a moment. There, at the height of Jesus' ministry, he had a large following of people. I mean, multitudes of people were following him. I, I would say that he probably had, I would describe it this way, thousands of so-called quasi-followers. And, you know, he would feed the multitude. He would preach to thousands upon thousands of people. But then, eventually, one by one, these people started falling away from Jesus and turning their backs on Him because they, they started really kind of understanding some of the things that He was saying. They were like, well, this, this teaching's not very easy. It's really hard uh, to accept. I, I think this guy is more than just a free Happy Meal, right? <laughs> this guy is calling us to pick up our cross and to deny ourselves. I'm not so sure I want any part of that. In fact, if you go and read, I think it's John chapter 6, where it, it even says that, you know, the crowds were saying, this teaching's hard, who can accept it? And they, they just turn their backs on Jesus, and Jesus actually turns to his disciples, and he says, to them, well, you guys aren't going to go away too, are you? No, Lord, no, because you alone have the keys or the words to eternal life. Now, Jesus, by the time that he died on the cross, he had, I think, 120 followers. That was it. He'd had thousands of so-called followers, but, but by the time he dies, he has 120. 
And I, I think just if you use that first definition of leadership, by that definition, Jesus wouldn't be considered a great leader. But obviously, that's not the case. I, as Christians, we would all have to agree that, that Jesus was the greatest leader of all time. And what did he do? What was the end result of his ministry? Those 120 followers, they changed the world. They changed the course of human history. And so Jesus teaches us that leadership is more than just drawing a crowd. And I'll just be honest with you, I never want my ministry to be defined by the number of butts in the seats, all right? It's nice to have all of you here. It really is. And and it's wonderful and it's something to celebrate. And I really enjoy seeing you all here every Sunday. But let us all understand that the true metric of success is not the ability to draw a crowd. The true metric of ministry success, I believe, is developing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, uh, developing people who are willing to lay down their lives, willing to lay down their self-interest for the cause of Christ and for His kingdom. It is developing people who are willing to take Jesus at His word. Those hard teachings, those things that He said were really difficult for those people to hear, and oftentimes it's difficult for us to hear, it's developing people who are willing to take Jesus at His word, lock, stock, and barrel, and conquer the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Wesley, one of my heroes of the faith, he once said this, and I don't think it's up here on the screen, he said, give me 100 preachers preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not whether they be clergymen or laymen, they alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of God on earth. It's about developing people who care nothing or fear nothing but sin and want to desire God, and they will change the world. So we're talking about leadership this morning. Why? Because here in the closing of 1 Peter, he begins this closing section with an exhortation to the leaders of the churches to whom he is writing. And he's going to let us know that character matters a great deal when it comes to biblical leadership. So we begin in verse 1, and you'll see, first of all, the word so. And I would just point out to you that this Greek word that's being translated here is the same word that is oftentimes translated as therefore. And I prefer the translation therefore. And so let's substitute that. And so what Peter says is therefore. And of course, you know that whenever we see therefore, we need to stop and we need to ask ourselves, well, what is it there for? Because it's there for a reason. It's connecting back to something that was previously said. And the closest reference point is at the close of the previous section where Peter said, judgment begins with the household of God. You remember all that? That's what he said. Now he says, therefore, because the judgment of God begins with the household of God, now I'm going to address, guess who? I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. The word elders here comes from the Greek word presbyteros. That's a lovely word, isn't it? Presbyteros. Try to say that three times really fast. It may sound familiar. We get our English word Presbyterian from this word, presbyteros. Here's one thing I want you to know. Presbyteros is one of three words that are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament in reference to the office of pastor. 
Let me say that again just so you get it. Because the first time I heard it, I was like, wait a minute, I don't understand. It's one of three words that are used interchangeably by the authors of the New Testament to refer to the office of pastor. Presbyteros is the first one. The second one is episkopos. That may also sound familiar. We get our word episcopalian, episcopal, from this word. That word means bishop. It means overseer. It means guardian. And sometimes you will see that in the New Testament. And then there's a third word, and that is my personal favorite. It's poimen. And poimen means shepherd or pastor. So again, all three of these words are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament in reference to the office of pastor. And here's what I think is really cool because I'm nerdy like that. All three words are actually found in this passage. They're used in one form or another. So let's be very clear. There is no mistake about it that Peter is addressing a group of elders, pastors, overseers who are leading and overseeing and shepherding these churches to whom he is writing. You will note also that Peter refers to himself as an eyewitness of the sufferings of, of Christ. Think about the main theme that we've encountered as we've gone through this journey of 1 Peter. And, and it's this, you know, live as a sojourner. This world is not your home. Genuinely share in the sufferings of Christ. Okay, because I've seen the sufferings of Christ. I, I've, I've witnessed that and I know what I'm talking about when I tell you to genuinely share in the sufferings of Christ, as we've learned, refusing to repay evil for evil, suffering unjustly and unfairly through no fault of your own. That's how Jesus suffered. Peter had a front row seat for that, and he's been calling this, these churches, these Christians in these churches, to follow that example. You'll notice also that he refers to himself as a fellow elder. Now, this is important. Because earlier in the letter, Peter referred to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. You go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, I believe it is. He says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he certainly was. And the office of apostle was the highest office in the New Testament first century church. It is an office that we believe, listen church, that we believe no longer exists. Now, it's certainly true that every Christian on one hand is an apostle in the sense that we are all ambassadors of Jesus Christ. That is true. But there was this office of apostle in the First Testament that no longer exists. It was reserved for those men who had witnessed the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And these apostles, they had tremendous authority. And of course, they went on to write much of what we call the New Testament. All of that to say, the office of apostle carried more weight than the office of elder. But you'll notice here that he doesn't refer to himself as, as an apostle. He refers to himself as a fellow elder, which probably means that he is serving as a pastor in the church of Rome, which we actually believe because we have good evidence, extra biblical evidence to believe that. Now, I believe this little detail is important. Why? It's easy to skip over this reference to himself being a fellow elder, but I think it's important because it demonstrates to us Peter's growth in humility and in leadership. There, there was a time when Peter, if you read the Gospels carefully, you'll see it, it's very clear. There was a time when Peter craved the title and the power and the authority of leadership. But now he seems to understand that there is far more to leadership than the title, the power, and the authority that comes with it. Peter understands that leadership requires humility it requires self-sacrifice. It requires getting your hands dirty 
in, in doing the work of ministry. And Jesus taught this to Peter through multiple examples. But, but first of all, we can go to the night of Jesus' betrayal where He took out the towel and the water and He washed the feet of His disciples. That was a lesson in leadership. He said, Peter, if, you, if you're going to be a leader of my church, you're going to have to serve others. And then, of course, He gave the grand example the very next day when He died on the cross and He stretched out His arms. He said, I love you and I love you this much. I'm going to lay down my life for the sins of the world, for all who would trust and believe in my death, burial, and resurrection, for the forgiveness of sin and the promise of everlasting life. But there's also a lesson in leadership there, which is you've got to be willing to deny yourself and sacrifice yourself for the good of others. And then the final lesson came on leadership in John chapter 21, which Pastor Jacob came earlier and read to us. And there was a reason why I had him read that to us. Jesus comes to Peter three times and says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Stop asking me. You're hurting my feelings. You know I love you. And then after the third time, Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep. And I think and I wonder if, if Jesus is saying to Peter there, you know, you're going to have great authority as an apostle. But you better be prepared. Don't just be some ivory tower apostle up there hiding away in this ivory tower some way writing New Testament documents. That's not what I've called you to do. You're going to have great authority as an apostle, but you better be prepared to do the dirty work of tending and feeding my sheep. And I have to wonder if that episode is in Peter's mind as he exhorts the elders in verses 2 and 3. He says... Shepherd the flock of God. Feed my sheep. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The word shepherd here is the verbal form of that word poimen, one of those three words that are used interchangeably for the office of pastor. Now, the, the question is, what does it mean to shepherd the flock of God? You know, I've never been a shepherd. I've been a lot of things in my life. I've been called a lot of things in my life, but I've never actually been a shepherd of physical, biological sheep. And so I, I, I can only tell you what I've read about the role of a, of a shepherd. But, you know, what does a shepherd do? A shepherd feeds the sheep he leads the sheep to green pastures. I think that's biblical. And he, he protects the sheep from enemies, from the wolf, that sort of thing. And so I, I believe the primary role of shepherding the flock of God is feeding and protecting the flock. And of course, when we talk about feeding in this context, we're talking about feeding the sheep of the Word of God. And so 1 Timothy 5.17 confirms this, where the Bible says, let the elders, presbyteros, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor at preaching and teaching. Now, before I was a pastor, I was a carpenter. I, I know what it's like to labor. I, I have spent many a day doing hard physical labor. I know what that is like. But now I'm a pastor, and I can just tell you that preaching and teaching God's Word is laborious work in its own right. And uh, I, I hope you see that in, in the way that, that I preach. It's not easy. It is very laborious. But for me and all men who are called, genuinely called by God, it is a labor of love. But again, the first and primary role 
of the pastor is to lead the sheep to the green pastures of God's Word. Why? Because sheep who are fed a steady diet of God's Word, they will grow into spiritual maturity. They will begin to conform their lives to the teachings of Jesus, even the hard teachings of Jesus, and they will be prepared to spot wolves in sheep's clothing. They will be protected. Then I want you to notice the phrase exercise oversight. That phrase comes from the word episkopos, the second of those three words that are used interchangeably in reference to the office of pastor. Again, episkopos means bishop or overseer. And so we learn here that the pastor is not just a shepherd. He is an overseer charged with overseeing the church. Let me put it this way. I'm going to illustrate it. I'm going to illustrate it kind of with a, a negative example, but trying to illustrate the idea of an overseer. Let me put it this way. In the New Testament, pastors are not hirelings of the congregation. They are God-called overseers, called to lead and shepherd the church with a degree of authority. And so I would just let you know, a pastor should never be viewed as a hireling and here's why that is. Jesus, from the lips of Jesus, he said it himself, the hireling runs when the wolf approaches. And so I think this is probably one mistake that many churches in the modern West have made. We tend to view the pastor as a hireling. Pastor, we've hired you to do this and only this, and we'll take care of everything else. And then if you step out of line, then boom, it's off with your head. And I would just be honest with you, as your pastor and overseer, I know it sounds incredibly self-serving, right? I'm just telling you what the Word of God says. If you are truly interested in your spiritual well-being, and I know that you are, but if you are truly interested in your spiritual well-being, you do not want a hireling as your pastor. You want a God-called overseer who will feed you and who will protect you and who has the moral compass and the moral fortitude to stand his ground and to tell it to you straight when it needs to be done. A good pastor, say it louder for those in the back, a good pastor is not a people pleaser. I'm not here to please you. Now, I like to be liked. I, I really do. Ask my wife, she'll tell you. I, I don't like it when people get upset with me and they, and they don't like me. I, I don't like that. And, you know, but at the end of the day, I'm not here to tickle your ears and to please you. I'm here to feed you and to protect you and to oversee the care of your soul. Um, I want to share with you two quotes from Adrian Rogers, a man I, I greatly admire. I think he was a great pastor, uh, a great leader, and he was known for making some, some really great quotes. And here's two great quotes. The first one is this. The pastor should always enter the pulpit with his resignation letter in his pocket. <laughs> Just so you know, I, I, don't have, I don't have my resignation letter in my pocket. I just <laughs> want you to know that. But, but what he says is true. I mean, there's, there's a principle there. The, the pastor needs to be prepared to lay, lay it down when the time comes, if, if need be. What he's getting at there is that the calling of a pastor, it's a dangerous calling. The pastor always has to, to ask himself in any situation, am I pleasing man or am I pleasing God? And, and, you know, and ultimately, he's got to please God. And there's going to come time, maybe, when he doesn't please man. And then what, he, then what is he going to do? Well, he's always got to enter the pulpit with his resignation letter in his pocket. Otherwise, when the time comes, he will shy away from saying the things that need to be said 
as a God called overseer. Here's the second quote I want to share with you, which is much more humorous than the first one. The problem with preachers today is that no one wants to kill them. You laughed more at the first one than that one, but I, I, I find that one actually more humorous. The problem with preachers today is that no one wants to kill them. And that, that is a reference to the Old Testament prophets. Because you read the Old Testament prophets and they were called by God to say, thus saith the Lord. And they were preaching to God's people. They were calling God's people to account. And God's people didn't like it. They didn't want to hear it. And they wanted to kill them. And sometimes they did. And, and I think and I fear that he's right about modern preachers. Too many modern preachers, they want to be winsome. They want to be popular. They want to draw a crowd. They want to be hip and cool. They want to have fog machines up here and LED screens by there, you know, whatever. That's not in the job description. None of it is in the job description. Not one bit of it. And there is a job description in Scripture. And so I would, I would just submit to you that solid biblical preaching will call God's people to account always. Why? Because as Peter has already said, judgment begins with the house of God. Always remember that this isn't twiddlywinks. This isn't child's play. It's not a, it's not a child's game that, that we play here. The heaven and hell are in the balance every week when we come into this place, as far as I am concerned. And so solid biblical preaching will challenge God's people to think deeply about the things of God. It will, it will challenge our assumptions. It will challenge us to continually seek to shape and conform our lives to Scripture into the, teachings of uh, into the teachings of Jesus. Let me be honest with you. It's just not easy. This is not easy. There, there are we, Almost every week I have a wrestling match with God. God, are you sure you want me to say that? Are you sure that's what I'm supposed to say? It's not easy. But let, let, me, let me just say this. I would rather you leave this place mad as nails at me, wanting to come at me with a pitchfork on Sunday afternoon. I would rather you leave this place mad at me and go home and be mad and stew over it for a couple of days and then really think, if, if that ever happens, then really just think about what was said and why are you mad because of something that I said. And then really think about it and go, oh, okay, well, maybe there's some biblical truth to that. And maybe I need to think more about it. I would rather you be mad as nails at me for a couple of days than for all eternity if I did not stand up here and do what God has called me to do. I would rather you be mad at with, with me for a couple of days. And by the way, if that ever happens, and I ever say something that you don't like, and you think it's just absolutely crazy, and you think about it for a couple of days, and you say, that's still crazy, and I'm still mad at, mad at him, would you do me a favor? Would you just give me a call? Would you just come see me so that we can talk about it? Because I just sincerely, honestly, all that I want to do is honor God with my ministry. I just want to give you the Word of God as straightforward as I can. It's up to you what you want to do with it after that. But that's my heart's desire. And it's not easy. And I think this is why Peter says what he says next. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. There must be a God-placed desire to serve as pastor. Any other motivation to serve in this role is it's doomed to fail. Both the man and the church that he serves. Here's a statistic. I don't know if it's true, but I've heard it repeated so often that I think that there's at least some truth to it. And the statistic is staggering, and it is this. Nine out of ten seminary graduates do not retire from the ministry. 
Imagine 10 men who graduate from seminary at the age of 30 and they go right into vocational ministry, working in the local church. 10 of them. By the time they reach the age of retirement, only one of them is still working in vocational ministry. It's an astounding statistic. Why is that? Well, some of these men would say, well, the church that I serve, they were just really hard. Well, that may be, but maybe it's because too many men are just simply not God-called overseer. And at the first sign of the wolf, they cower in fear rather than stand their ground and do what God would have them to do. So pastors must be God-called, serving willingly. And now we get to it with all integrity, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The phrases, not for shameful gain and not domineering, those two phrases are connected. They go together like love and marriage. And the thought is, you should not aspire to the office of pastor if all that you want is power and money. And I know most of you are not aspiring to the office of pastor, but just so you know, a pastor should not aspire to this office should not be motivated by power and money because those who are motivated by power and money, they will seek to advance their own interest above the interest of God. I think we can all agree, we should all agree on this point, that there is an epidemic of such men in ministry today. And, and I have stood up here and I have named names in the past and I'm not going to do it today. You know who they are. And just in case you don't know who they are, they're on that TV channel, TBN. I just turn that thing off. Just turn the thing off. There, there's, like, there's like maybe a handful of solid guys on that network, but there's like 80 to 90% of those guys are in it for shameful gain. Just turn them off. Power and money are not the motivation for pastors. Something far more valuable is our motivation, he says in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you, the elders, will receive the unfading crown of glory. In other words, your pay is out of this world, pastor. That's, that's what that means. All right? don't, don't labor. Right? Don't be motivated by, by getting rich in money and power. No, be motivated by the fact that if you faithfully serve God in your ministry, then God's going to honor you for all eternity. That's all that that simply means. When you get into eternity, you're going to get your reward. And you're going to stand face to face with Jesus Christ. Now, most of you, again, are not pastors. You're not aspiring to be pastors. You never will be. But many of you do have leadership roles in the church. And so many of these same principles, I would just say to you, they apply to anyone serving in a leadership capacity in the church. So deacons, serving on ministry teams, Sunday school, Bible study teachers. Let me just say to you, make sure that you're serving for the right reasons, not for title, not for power, not for influence or selfish gain not to have your own way but be willing to sacrifice everything that you have to serve jesus christ and his church do it to serve god faithfully and to honor him with all integrity you'll be blessed and so will the church that you serve as peter continues he turns now his attention to the community the church at large and he says in verse 5 likewise this is also connecting back to the thought of God's judgment. Likewise, because God's judgment is coming upon the household of God first, 
you who are younger, be subject to the elders. It is unclear how Peter uses the word younger. Is he speaking to youth and young adults, those who might be prone to rebel against the authority of the pastors? Maybe. It's also possible that younger is just a useful counterpart to elder, and as such, it refers to the entire community. We will never know on this side of eternity how Peter is wanting us to understand this word younger. But here's what we do know. Elsewhere, the New Testament commands the church, all of you, to submit to its pastoral leaders. Hebrews 13, 17, it's the life verse of every pastor. Am I right, Bill Cook? Here it is. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as overseers, as those who will have to give an account, because judgment begins with the household of God. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Just by way of reminder, earlier in the letter, Peter told wives to submit to their husbands. He told slaves to submit to their masters. He told Christians to submit to the governing authorities. Remember all of that. Now he's concluding, and I'm convinced he's addressing the entire church, and he says to them, submit to the leadership of your pastors. You'll remember that when we talked about wives submitting to their husbands, I told you then what submission does not mean. Submission does not mean submitting to something that is harmful or degrading or sinful, hurtful. That's not what submission means. A, a wife is under no duty or obligation whatsoever to submit to those things from her, from her husband. And in the same way, the church is under no obligation whatsoever to submit to its pastors who are asking them to do something that is hurtful or harmful or degrading or sinful. And I point this out because there have been many men in my position who have abused their authority. Just as there have been many husbands who have abused their authority over their wives, I never want to do that. All right? So the idea here is kind of the same. In the same way, a wife respects the husband as the head and the leader of the home in the same way the church is to respect its pastors, its leaders, in the very same way in their God-given role as the leader of the church and submit to their leadership so far as it's not calling the church to do something sinful, harmful, or hurtful. Submission doesn't come easy to us, does it? And Peter knows this, and therefore he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Far too often, people will allow their pride to get in the way of submission to biblical leadership. Pride gets upset, and pride grumbles, and pride complains when pride doesn't get its way or when personal preferences are not, not met, or when our deeply rooted traditions are not honored. Humility, on the other hand, puts the things of Jesus and the advancement of the gospel above all else. Notice once again the reference to judgment, the end of verse 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There it is. Judgment begins with the house of God. Be humble and submit to the leaders that God has placed over you. So, church, I would just say to you, take God at his word, if you're not already doing so, practice humble submission to your leaders. Now he shifts gears in verse 6, and he's going to change topics. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Always remember this, church. All right, the way up is down. Christian speaking, right? The way up, the way to exaltation is through is by humbling yourself. That's always true in every situation. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him 
because He cares for you. I think Peter now is addressing the humility that is required to suffer as genuine Christians. This makes sense. This has been the primary theme of the letter. All throughout the letter, this is what he's been, been getting at. And it makes sense for him to return to this theme, this theme once more in conclusion of the letter. Let's talk about humility for just a second. Humility is required not only for submission to church leaders, but to suffer as a genuine Christian. It requires a radical self-denial and a radical trust in God to refuse to repay evil for evil and insult for insult. It takes radical humility to do that. It requires a radical self-denial and a radical trust in God to bless those who hurt you and those who harm you and those who hate you and those who speak all kinds of evil against you. And this is exactly what Peter has called his audience to do all throughout the letter. And now he's reminding them, okay, if you're going to do this, you've got to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You remember last week, he referred to God as the faithful creator, a good and gracious and loving God. And in creator, he's reminding us that he has the power to do all things, including the power to exalt us even after death. And so the point is, no matter what you lose in suffering for Jesus Christ, whether it be your earthly possessions or just simply your pride, trust that he will exalt you with his mighty hand, casting all of your anxieties upon them. He knows that what he's calling you to do, he knows it's not easy. He did it himself. This is the path that he walked in his life. He knows it, and so cast all of your anxieties upon him. He is our great high priest, the Bible says. He, he can sympathize with us in every weakness, so run very boldly to the throne of grace. Verse 8, he says, be sober-minded, be alert, be, my, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Why does a lion roar? A lion roars. If you were out in the jungles of Africa one day, just out for a walk, and you heard the lion roar, what would happen to you? You would be instantly in a state of fear. Your, your heart would leap out of your chest, probably. Or it would skip a beat. A lion roars to instill fear. And so your adversary, the devil, wants nothing more than for you to fear. And I think especially in the context of Peter, he wants you to fear your fellow man. Because he knows that the fear of man will do more to hinder your gospel witness than anything else. And so the moment you begin to hedge your witness out of fear of what others will say or what others will do, that's the moment the devil has you right where he wants you. Verse 9, resist him. Firm in your faith. Trust in God. Knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter says, your, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world are being insulted. They're being persecuted. They're being treated unfairly just as you are. You should know this. Don't be afraid. Stand firm in your faith. Verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is another way of saying fix your eyes on the author and finisher of our faith. Fix your eyes on the hope and the glory that is before you. Fix your eyes on that moment that's described in Revelation 21.4 where you close your eyes in death in this life. You open them immediately in the next life and you're greeted by Jesus who is there to wipe away every tear from your eyes. That's, that's such a beautiful picture. It is such a beautiful picture. I, I, I get such hope 
whenever I read that. There he is. He's going to be there to, to meet you and to greet you and wipe every tear from your eye. And then you're going to hear those words, those coveted words, well done, good and faithful servant. Keep your eyes focused on the prize. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter ends with a, a note of worship and praise and worship. And I would just say to you, you know, these Christians are hurting and we should be able to praise and worship God no matter what our circumstances are in good times and in bad times. Verse 12, by Silvanus, let's just call him Silas because that's who he is. By Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. Silas is the secretary. Peter dictated, Silas wrote it down, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And Peter says, everything that I have written to you represents the true grace of God. And I think he's talking about the idea of suffering or sharing in the suffering of Christ. That's the true grace of God. If you suffer as a genuine Christian through no fault of your own, of your own seeking to follow in the footsteps of Christ, Suffering unjustly and unfairly in this world, guess what? That is the true grace of God. She who is at Babylon, that would be the church in Rome, who is likewise chosen. Just a reminder, the church collectively represents God's chosen people. Sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Then we get to everyone's favorite verse. Greet one another with the kiss of love. What if I told you this was actually a command? Amen. <laughs> why, why don't we do this? It's biblical. It's very biblical. And the truth is, in Middle Eastern society and culture, they still practice this, this kiss of love, this, this holy kiss. It's cheek to cheek. We don't practice that. Okay, we're Americans, whatever. But we do have a time of greeting. This kiss of love, it was a way of demonstrating their genuine love, brotherly love, for their brothers and sisters in Christ. So we don't do that, but we do have a time of greeting. And you guys do that so very well. Thank you for embracing that. And that is an opportunity, the greeting, to demonstrate your genuine love for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So that brings us to the end of the text. That brings us to the end of the book. And in closing, I just want to share, you, share with you this last quote. And it comes from the tombstone, the headstone of Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley, she was the mother of John Wesley, who I mentioned earlier in this message. And Su Susanna Wesley understood a thing or two about suffering and sharing in the sufferings of Christ. She was born into a Puritan family, 17th century England, I think it was. And they were persecuted mercilessly, the Puritans. They were seeking to purify the Church of England. They were persecuted by fellow Christians. It was a very difficult time. That's the reason why we have the First Amendment, by the way, but that's for another time. She knew what it was like to suffer genuinely as a Christian, and this is what is written on her headstone, ensure in certain hope to rise. My death is not the end of the story. And same thing for you, church. Your death is not going to be the end of the story. Your suffering for Christ is not going to be the end of the story. Ensure and certain hope to rise. One day God will exalt you. And claim her mansion in the skies. A Christian here, her flesh laid down. She's buried, her, her body's been buried in the ground. And then lastly, the cross exchanging for a crown. She denied herself. She picked up her cross and followed Jesus. 
as well as she could. And she understood that the pain and the suffering and the trials of this life, it paled in comparison to the crown that she was going to receive on the other side of eternity. That, in a nutshell, church, is the message of First Peter. Pick up your cross, deny yourself, share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, and keep your eyes focused on the future and the hope that is set before you. Father, thank you so much for the picture of true grace that you have given us in First Peter. I pray that you would give us the grace to finish well, in our trials, grant us patience. In our suffering, grant us joy. And may we know what it is to share in the suffering of Christ. To share, to genuinely, genuinely suffer as a genuine Christian. Through no fault of our own, but as people who are seeking to take Jesus at his word. Especially those really hard and difficult sayings of his and live God-glorifying lives for His glory and His glory alone. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand, church. We're going to sing one more song, and it's a song of invitation. So if God is speaking to you, if He's spoken to you this morning through whatever it is, through the sermon, through the music, through Sunday school, don't leave without responding. You can respond right where you are. You can come here, kneel down at this altar and pray. I'd be happy to, to pray with you. Whatever it is, I would encourage you to come. If there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in Jesus Christ, believing that he died on the cross as a sacrifice for your sin and was raised to life again for the forgiveness of sin and the promise of everlasting life, I would encourage you most definitely to respond. It's the greatest decision you could ever make. It's not a life of easy street. No, he calls you to deny yourself. But boy, the reward is out of this world. Whatever it is that's on your heart, I would encourage you to come.